0: Hello, I'm Nadia Singh and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing mutations of the COVID-19 virus and the possible consequences of them. To discuss this are IDSA members, Dr. Adam Loring with the University of Michigan and Dr. Stanley Perlman of the University of Iowa. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Loring, let's start with you. What do we know about the genetic diversity of SARS-CoV-2 in terms of the number and type of strains that currently exist?
1: Uh, SARS-CoV-2 actually exhibits uh, much less genetic diversity than, for example, influenza virus or um, many other RNA viruses. Most of the circulating SARS-CoV-2 Um, variants, uh, differ from the original Wuhan uh, isolate by fewer than 15 mutations. So that means, given we're in September, that's less than two two mutations per month on average are accumulating. The genome is about 30,000 bases long, uh, so it's much larger than many other RNA viruses. And uh, quick back-the-envelope math will tell you that that means that all, pretty much all viruses that are out there uh, are about 99.9% identical or even more similar than that. Uh, so that's, that's not, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a ton of, a ton of genetic diversity. And so the, these sequences just refer to the genotype of the viruses, so the string of letters that make up each sequence. Strictly speaking, uh, when we refer to a strain uh, that means a virus uh, that has a different phenotype, so it behaves differently in some way. Uh, for example, maybe it, its antigenicity is different, so it looks different to the immune system, or maybe it's more virulent, or maybe it transmits better. And right now, there isn't really strong evidence yet that many of these uh, circulating viral variants actually behave that differently, that they really can be called strains Strain is a useful term that we can throw about to kind of talk about variants, but it's important to realize that you know we haven't really found yet that a lot of these differ in important ways from each other. Thank
0: you, Dr. Loring. Dr. Perlman, moving on to you now, what is the pattern of mutations showing in terms of geographic distribution? Is there diversity found when comparing regions or countries, or are there multiple strains even within a given geographic
2: area? We know so much about these this virus, with so many cases in the world and such intense research, that we are doing lots of uh, RNA sequencing, and that's the data. That's the basis for the uh, statements that uh, Dr. Loring made. And what, what the one thing we don't really know is that what what does this all mean? Because an example before I got to SARS-CoV-2, one of my favorite examples is measles, where we think there's only one strain of virus. But as we sequence it more and more and greater, That we find out, well, there's changes here, there, but there's no evidence that measles virus has changed at all in its ability to infect people or anything that it does really. So we have a lot of information now because these sequence analyses are being done everywhere and they're being done at great length. But what what it actually means is uh, something we still have to figure out. One of the points is that when we think about a virus, what we really care about is a change that gets fixed into the population of viruses. So... In some cases, these changes are being fixed into population. So if you go to one part of the uh, world, you might find a specific change there. And this is this is the basis for uh, the recent description of there was a single chain in the surface glycoprotein, which is important for binding the virus to the cell. This mutation seemed to take over the population in certain parts of the world, and there's been many, many studies that show that this change may have subtle effects, maybe in transmission, maybe not. It certainly isn't changing whether people get sicker or not, or whether they transmit better or not. So as far as we know, this change, even though it's incorporated, and even though we might call it a strain, whether it matters uh, a lot is not really known. And this is what's going to happen. There's going to be changes. If they get fixed into populations, maybe we'll call them strains, maybe not. And The key thing is whether they become more uh, virulent, they cause more disease, or they cause less disease, they're attenuated. That's what we really care about and whether they transmit more. And so far, even for the single mutation that I just mentioned, there's really not evidence that it's changing a pattern of transmission. It just seems to be able to outcompete the original virus. So RNA viruses, which is what SARS-CoV-2 is, it means it's a virus that has RNA as its backbone, are prone to mutation. Coronaviruses have mechanisms to prevent some of that variation, but they still are much more variable than the DNA in our cells or the DNA in DNA viruses like herpes. So you put this all together, finding mutations are not a surprise. Even finding them fixed into certain uh, subpopulations is not a surprise. What they mean is uh, really unknown now, and there's no evidence that they mean very much this is a long way of getting back to your original question. So in terms of geographic distribution, there are uh, differences in these substrains, but that's because in a given region, a specific mutation might become uh, incorporated into the mass population of viruses. And But it may not mean anything, but where it's useful is, so for example, in the US, we're trying to figure out where the, we our SARS-CoV-2 came from. And uh, by tracing back, it looked like some of the virus I came directly from China by its sequence of these regions that were variable between the different viruses while others seemed to come from some of the European outbreaks. so again, it didn't change anything in terms of uh, understanding the how the infection works, but it might tell us something about where the virus came from.
1: even now, tracking these individual mutations in various geographic regions is um of great interest uh for Uh, epidemiologists and uh, what's called genomic epidemiology and that it can provide information on even within a given state uh, where viruses are coming from and in localities uh, how they move uh, about. Uh, So even though uh, there's a lot of uncertainty on how these mutations might uh, reflect changes in virulence or transmissibility or traits such as that, Uh, there's still a tremendous benefit in tracking these mutations to understand how viruses are spreading in communities as well.
0: Thank you both for your insights. Dr. Loring, sticking with you, what does the detection of recurrent mutations indicate in terms of how the SARS-CoV-2 virus is adapting to its novel human host?
1: One thing that people have been paying close attention to and looking at this truly massive amount of sequence data that's been generated in the last nine months is again looking for mutations that seem to pop up multiple times independently, perhaps in different parts of the world. Um, because if this, if rare events are happening uh, with you know some frequency, then that is suggestive that there is some sort of adaptation going on. Now, whether it's specifically adaptation to a human host, uh, that's something that uh, is of interest, but it could be adaptation for things that we don't quite understand yet. But regardless, it's important to understand how the virus is adapting and evolving. The really tricky thing is, even if you see recurrent mutations popping up, it can be really hard to demonstrate that a mutation is indeed adaptive, uh, or that it's more fit uh, relative to other SARS-CoV-2 variants that are out there. Now, it's, it's hard because the bar is pretty high because we do know that sometimes mutations can spread or even recur due to chance. Uh, Dr. Pullman mentioned this one mutation in spike, D614G, that uh, has received a lot of attention. And so it spread rapidly and it's now the dominant uh, virus uh, globally. And, and so that's been suggestive of adaptation. Uh, some experiments in, in vitro in the lab suggest that it might um, affect how the virus infects cells or other um, kind of molecular um, traits. Uh, however, it's also possible that these that early kind of chance events gave this virus something like a head start in certain areas or that other epidemiologic factors led to its dominance as opposed to, you know, mediating a change in the virus. Um, and there was at least one modeling study uh, uh, in the UK, which I think is still as a preprint, Um, which looked at over 20,000 sequences in uh, the United Kingdom and did um, a lot of modeling of these sequences to try to see if there was any evidence that it was adaptive. Um, And they really weren't able to find a strong signal that this was adaptive in what would be a pretty well-powered study with over 20,000 sequences. So that doesn't rule it out um, that that mutation could be adaptive but it would suggest potentially that, that if it is adaptive, the effect might be relatively modest and that it was hard to detect much of an effect with uh, truly massive amounts of data. So I think that highlights really the challenges in looking at these mutations and figuring out what they mean, that it, it can be really tricky and um, it's you have to be careful not to get ahead of yourself uh, in, in a, attaching meaning to them, but that doesn't mean that we still shouldn't you know, look closely at every single one of these.
2: If you look at the sequences out of a single individual, which people have done, and we know that the, this virus, like all other RNA viruses that infect uh, animals, uh, they, they don't really infect the, in pe- people as a single RNA species, but rather as a group of RNA molecules called quasi-species, and if if one goes and takes these quasi species from a single person, who's and this person may have just the usual run of the mill SARS CoV two, if you take the quasi species and you isolate all the different viruses, you find some viruses that seem to be much more virulent, much more able to kill cells, at least in tissue culture, than others. And at the end, but the end, those viruses never become dominant in that host. So we we are getting a lot of information that's uh, potentially useful in the long term but right now it's not really adding to our understanding of how the infection in people is occurring because we're just getting a just really a boatload of information and we just don't know what these changes mean uh, in the real host
0: IDSA invites you to kick off ID Week with 24 hours of COVID-19 coverage with Chasing the Sun. This global event begins Wednesday, October 21st at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and other partners have provided funds to offset the cost for attending Chasing the Sun, which gives you access to health authorities from around the world, offering unique global perspectives and data on COVID-19. Register now at IDWeek.org. Thank you, doctors. Dr. Perlman, sticking with you Are the mutations being observed neutral and does an increase in mutations mean the virus is becoming more harmful over time?
2: Yeah, so I think we've discussed the first part already that uh, so far the mutations seem to be neutral in the broad sense, whether they have some sort of more subtle effects on something within different hosts, we don't really know yet. But they all appear to be relatively neutral in, at least in the big picture, whether they change some manifestations of entering a cell or uh, interacting with the immune system very subtly, I think we don't know yet. Uh, the, the, the increase in mutations, it, it doesn't mean that it's becoming more harmful over time. We, as, as we've talked about already, these viruses tend to uh, mutate all the time anyway, and ones that have slight advantages may be selected transiently in a population Or maybe even they'll be selected uh, over uh, into become the most uh, common form in the population like the uh, D614G that uh, Dr. Loring was mentioning. So they become incorporated, but we don't have any reason to think that they mean it's getting more harmful as was already discussed. We certainly have illustrations where in coronaviruses where they can become more harmful. So the original SARS virus was really a bat virus that went through intermediate hosts in Guangzhou uh, province in China. And when it reached humans, it was not really very well adapted for humans. So we can follow the sequences of this virus over the a few months of the SARS epidemic. And we can see that it would actually did adapt to humans to become better able to infect humans. So there was in a case where increasing mutations uh, meant it was a potential, well, certainly better adapted to humans, maybe more harmful as well. But with this virus, one of the amazing things about this virus is the virus is so well adapted to humans. It doesn't really need to change much. From the point of view of the virus, it's doing just fine. It's highly transmissible, doesn't kill very many people. You don't want to, as a virus, uh, a mortality rate of 1% to 2%. Is uh, probably acceptable, of course, from our point of view. One to two percent is not acceptable, but from the virus's point of view, it just wants to have, uh, make more viruses, and it's looking for susceptible hosts. And if it doesn't kill most of its, the people are infected, but it can spread, then it's doing exactly what it wants to do. So no real increase, Uh, the increase in mutations, if there is one, does not mean the virus is getting more harmful over time.
0: I appreciate your insights, Doctor Perlman. Is the level and type of mutations being observed in SARS-CoV-2 similar to how other viruses have been shown to behave, or are they different, Dr. Loring?
1: You know, as we touched on earlier, there's, there's not as much diversity in SARS-CoV-2 relative to uh, other RNA viruses. So, for example, SARS-CoV-2, what we're seeing is it accumulates uh, mutations at a, at a rate that's about five times lower than influenza virus. So that kind of gives you perspective. Uh, we also talk about um, recombination where the virus swaps different parts of its genome with other SARS-CoV-2s. And it's known that coronaviruses do that quite a bit. It's a little harder to get a handle on recombination rates for kind of technical uh, reasons relative to mutation rates. But you know, there are plenty of RNA viruses that do that a lot. The rhinovirus, a common cold virus does this uh, it's kind of a great achiever in recombination, uh, but so in general uh, sars cov two just it's its diversity is low it doesn't accumulate mutations as much it's uh, in many ways a little bit of a boring virus uh, from a genetic perspective, um, but like I said earlier, there's still interesting things uh, that we can learn about you know a given mutation or what uh, various mutations still can tell us about how the virus is spreading um, so Right now, uh, we're left with a lot, not much diversity and not much accumulation of mutations, uh, but also getting to an appointment, Dr. Perlman highlighted earlier, it's been nine months and it's been a staggering amount of data that's come out on this virus already. Uh, it's you know, it's, it's uh, probably the most sequenced virus per unit time. I think that's uh, out there. So it hasn't been for a lack of looking. The level of mutations is the same as we see in other
2: coronaviruses. So this virus, this coronavirus as a coronavirus is not behaving differently from other coronaviruses. And as Dr. Loring pointed out, of course, it is less mutable than other kinds of RNA viruses because it has more proofreading activity, which means it can correct errors a little more easily than other RNA viruses can.
0: I appreciate your insights, doctors. Lastly, what is the significance of these mutations in SARS-CoV-2 in terms of disease prevention and treatment? in other words, developing vaccines and treatments, respectively. Dr. Perlman.
2: Yes. Okay. So we already talked a little bit about what the effects could be in terms of disease. Now, in terms of disease prevention and treatment, so far, we have not seen that these mutations matter. So how could they matter? If you had mutations in the uh, main target of the uh, antibody response, which is the uh, surface glycoprotein, you could imagine that there would be a loss of reactivity either to a vaccine or to a previous infection, the antibodies that you made in response to a previous version of uh, COVID-19 if you were reinfected. But in fact, we have not seen any of this yet. We've not seen any uh, evidence that neutralizing antibodies, which are one of the mainstays of the immune response, have ineffective in anyone who's infected with SARS-CoV-2. And part of this is because you would need several Time, mutations to be able to avoid a multifocal or polyclonal antibody response. So, in terms of uh, in terms of prevention, so far no evidence that a vaccine won't be useful. No evidence that a prior infection uh, will will not induce immunity. At least in terms of the quality of the antibody response. There's a lot of discussion still about how long lasting an antibody response is and other parameters, but not anything to do with the mutations in the uh, virus. In terms of treatment, this is always a concern with treatment, especially when you use a single uh, agent to treat a virus infection. So, you know, from HIV, that's the reason that we use a a multi-agent treatment protocol so we can prevent mutations that make the virus resistant to whatever treatment in question. This is a very different virus because, of course, this is, uh, for the most part, an acute infection. So there's not as much time for the virus uh, to develop Uh, mutations as we see in HIV, which of course is a much long, uh, it's a chronic infection. Now in terms of specific treatments, we really only have one treatment right now that's shown any efficacy and that's remdesivir. Uh, And its efficacy is not uh, great. And that's probably because of the way we're using it rather than uh, because of it not being a very useful therapy. There may be other agents that come on the market as well. But in all cases so far, Uh, for remdesivir and and a a few of the others that are coming on the market. If there is mutations, generally it debilitates the virus. So the virus actually can no longer grow as well. So even though it's changed and may be resistant to remdesivir, it no longer can infect uh, people as as virulently as uh, the original strain. So, so far, uh, no evidence that these mutations matter for treatment. This is uh, certainly an area, if, if there became a treatment that became widespread and was used in many, many people. You could imagine the virus would mutate. Certainly, we saw that in flu. We see it in HIV. So RNA viruses do this readily, but so far in the case of SARS-CoV-2, nothing that matters so far.
1: The only other thing I would add to what Dr. Perlman said is, I think as as he indicated in the drug resistance case, that mutations can make the virus resistant to drug, but then also weaken it in certain ways. And that sometimes reduces their chance of kind of gaining a foothold. Um, and the same thing happens in terms of, uh, for example, the glycoprotein um, you know that's targeted uh, by the immune response for vaccines that sometimes you can have a mutation uh, that will make it uh, allow the virus to escape the antibodies or T cells or things like that, um, but that mutation, you know, comes at a cost, so it actually makes it harder for the virus to infect a cell or do what it needs to do. And so, there are these trade-offs um, that uh, viruses some, sometimes have to navigate. Um, and uh, we don't know yet how that is going to play out with SARS-CoV-2, but so far, it looks uh, promising in terms of you know the ability to use drugs and vaccines um, as countermeasures. A question I get a lot is, "Well, are we going to need a vaccine every year?" like uh, we do for influenza. So far, it doesn't look that way. Obviously, people are going to look at it, but I I think it's important to remember that influenza is a little bit more of the exception than the rule. And many RNA viruses, we have a a vaccine that's been around for years and that still works even as the virus mutates. So as Dr. Perlman mentioned, measles, uh, clearly mumps, rubella, hepatitis A, uh, the list goes on and on uh, of, of lots of viruses that mutate a lot but yet that hasn't proven problematic in terms of vaccines. So hopefully a SARS-CoV-2 will be the same.
0: We can only hope for that. Thank you, Dr. Loring. Any final thoughts, doctors?
1: I hope we get
2: to the point where we have to start thinking about a treatment that's inducing some resistance to the virus, because that means we actually have found a, a treatment that's effective. And that would be a step forward rather than a step back. So. I'm I'm looking forward to that problem. Failure indicates success. Right, exactly.
0: At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Loring and Perlman for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.